This is a huge pot of money. This is the major source of state spending. I do think the whole fight around public education and how that is deeply connected to urban economic restructuring makes the Newark case speak to uh, struggles more broadly. Okay, let's get started. Uh, hi, I'm uh, David Forrest. I'm an associate professor of politics at Oberlin College in Northeast Ohio. And I am uh, very excited uh, to be here to speak with Jay Arena about his new book with the University of Minnesota Press. It is called Expelling Public Schools, How Anti-Racist Politics Enable School Privatization in Newark. Jay is someone whose work I have sort of long admired from afar. I have always found that his writing really challenges me and my students to think more carefully about inequality, why it persists, and you know what it would take to really address it. And in many ways, I actually wish uh, this book had been already published before I published my own book, uh, A Voice But No Power, Organizing for Social Justice in Minneapolis, which is also with University of Minnesota Press, because um, you know, while my writing isn't strictly about public education per se, a lot of the organizing I studied you know, was centered around that. That was kind of one of my cases. And a lot of stuff for me, I think, was clarified by Jay's book that hopefully we'll get into here in a little bit. But um, just super excited to have this conversation. Well, well, David, it's great to be here with you. I guess we have a mutual admiration society going on here because uh, I, I think you're really appropriate to do this interview because we both, our, our work is around trying to find out how do we develop an alternative to this neoliberal capitalist monster that's been dominating American and, and global society. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the coup in Chile, which was a real turning point on the whole global neoliberal turn. So uh, in many ways, it's really appropriate that we're getting together for this, uh, for this conversation. Yeah, I go by Jay. My official name's John. That's on the book. It can be confusing to people. That's another long family story. But <laughs> I, yeah, most people call me Jay. But I'm currently a, an associate professor of sociology at the City University of New York, New York's uh, College of Staten Island uh, campus, where I've been there since 08. But for many years, I worked uh, as a labor and community organizer in New Orleans, uh, beginning in the mid-80s. I'm originally from upstate New York and uh, actually worked with uh, initially with Acorn, Wade Rathke, who interviewed you recently on your important book. I arrived there in the mid-80s. It was the end of the first administration of the second term of the first black mayor, Ernest Dutch Moriel, whose uh, son is the head of the uh, National Urban League, Mark Moriel. So that was kind of the context of my organizing and uh, involved in work with the union, organizing public employees, public authority, housing employees in New Orleans, and a number of other struggles. And uh, a lot of the time we were coming up, all the time, we were coming up against the local black political leadership uh, who ruled kind of an alliance with the corporate elite. And so when I went to, to graduate school, it was to think a little bit more deeply of some of the struggles uh, that I had been involved in. I was also in Latin America, and I think that also influenced this analysis of what was going on, because I could see a, a lot of parallels with the neoliberal agenda in Latin America. And so I eventually began to work around public housing, the privatization of public housing. 
in New Orleans, and that was my first work. And it, one of the kind of the questions I had is, why were these former activists, public housing residents, their allies who I'd worked with over a number of years, how are they ending up kind of in bed with the developers to push through uh, consensually uh, the privatization of this one particular development, but which was part of the broader privatization in the city, which then, of course, went on steroids uh, after Hurricane Katrina 2005. Well, now we're coming up on that anniversary. I'm getting old, you know, 50 years since Chile, 20 years since Hurricane Katrina. And so that was the, the, the focus of the first book. And I looked at the role of kind of the nonprofits and helping kind of consensually introduce the privatization agenda. And so the work of Adolph Reed, as well as other works around the whole nonprofit complex, both in Latin America and in the U.S. context, were really important. So my work has always been about, you know, looking at struggles, but then why don't they go very far? Why are they, how are they captured? And what are the lessons that we can take from defeat? Because it can be kind of depressing being involved in the in these struggles. So that was the impetus. And I've always tried to link uh, my activism and my research. And then, luckily, I went on the market in 2008, and a position opened up at a full time position. Right, we have 70 percent of the positions at CUNY are adjunct, uh, a contingent labor. But I was lucky enough to get a full time position at. Uh, the College of Staten Island. It was kind of interesting, too. I grew up in upstate New York, and people ask, where are you from? New York. And, and you automatically think uh, the city. But this was the first time that I was able to live and work in you know, what most people assume as New York. Although I ended up living in New Jersey. So I arrived there in 08, right there as the Great Recession hit, which is the focus of your book, kind of the struggles in the wake of the Great Recession in Minneapolis. And so I immersed myself in the New Jersey and New York area in a number of different struggles. Hopefully, you know, the greatest downturn in global capitalism since the 1930s, clearly in the U.S. It took a while. I mean, there was the the Occupy movement, which I did participate in. I wrote some works on that, on kind of the limits of what kind of blocked it? the advancement. I think there was a lot of potential there, but I think they had absorbed a lot of the neoliberal anti-statist ideas, which was a, an obstacle to advancing that movement. But then fell into my lap this huge movement against the privatization, the sell-off of public schools in Newark, where I had moved to the largest city uh, in New Jersey. In Staten Island, you might wonder, why are you living there? Well, actually, Staten Island is kind of used to belong to New Jersey, and it's actually easier to get to Staten Island from New Jersey than it is from the other, certainly from Manhattan, which is just the ferry, and then from Brooklyn, from Verrazano. So I was there, and this movement really fell in my lap. And in the aftermath of the Great Recession, it looked like there was going to be a, a move away from the neoliberal agenda. But actually, Obama, after the first few years, uh, David Cotts, in his book on neoliberalism and the social structure accumulation, does say there was a, a move a, briefly away from neoliberalism, and then they really stepped on the gas, and that was most clearly seen around public education. The Obama administration, I mean, they were staffed with the privatizers, with Arne Duncan, and that whole Department of Education had been colonized, basically, by what I consider these movement activists from the advocates for privatization of public education, which they consider a progressive agenda. And so this huge movement breaks out under the Cory Booker administration. And a friend of mine said, look, 
you've got to work on this. This is like a great opportunity that fell in my lap. And so beginning around 13, after finishing my first book with University of Minnesota on New Orleans, I kind of began immersing myself in this movement. And, uh, you know, it was a real puzzle because it was a huge movement that basically drives out Cory Booker. He always wanted to go to higher office. And of course, eventually to the presidency, also Obama beat him to the punch. But uh, the governor's office was considered a better jumping off point compared to the Senate. Uh, But he couldn't wait that long. And so he jumps to the Senate. And then Raz Baraka, the son of the famed activist, poet, leader of the Black Power Movement, uh, Amiri Baraka, rises to power. And so it's very, you know, very interesting context. But that was the puzzle. He rides the movement to power against the privatization, against the sell-off. But then it's kind of anticlimactic because he gets to power and then there's no real move against the charters. They continue their expansion and he begins to politically conciliate and eventually ally with them. And so that was kind of the puzzle. What is going on here? Uh, how do we explain this? It was a huge movement, stronger than the ones I had studied in New Orleans, but then were contained eventually. And that's kind of the focus, trying to draw out those lessons from that. Yeah, excellent. Thanks. That was a great introduction. You know, a couple of t- I, I just wanted to say I've always been somewhat, I don't know if the word is um, jealous or admiring towards people who came into the social sciences from organizing backgrounds, because folks like you always seem to have st- like a much stronger and sharper idea of like what the problems are you're concerned with that you bring. Whereas I, I kind of came in not from that kind of background straight from undergrad and felt like I floundered around for several years before I even understood what my concerns were. So it's really great to engage with people from those backgrounds. And I can totally identify, you know, with this thing that happened under Obama where, you know, public schools became central to the neoliberal agenda. I have very distinct memories of reading an article in the New York Times around when he was elected, when they were talking to these, you know, teachers union leaders and saying, you know, well, how do you feel about What's going on here with Obama, the people he's bringing in, and they would just seem to be in complete denial. Like, it's okay. Obama's got our backs or whatever. Like, it felt um, weird. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, I actually kind of just want to jump into the book where you just left off, which is you open with this great story, which you kind of just summarized about these two mayoral administrations, Booker, Baraka, the movement that kind of upended Booker's efforts to push corporate school reform and how Baraka wound up succeeding where Booker failed and getting the movement into a place where there was acquiescence. So your sort of wager to start the book is that even if you're not sort of intrinsically interested in Newark, which is a kind of intrinsically interesting place, and these characters you're you know in the story are intrinsically interesting, but even if someone's not intrinsically interested in Newark, this case or this story, figuring it out, figuring out what happened, provides a window into these sort of much broader questions about, as you say, the mechanisms that reproduce, deepen, and manage inequality within the context of post-civil rights, Black and urban politics. So I just want to just as a starting point, ask you to say a little bit more about why you think this story is of such like broad interest. Like why is it, before we get into like your particular argument, your, you know, the particulars of the narrative, what makes this such an interesting story? Like what makes it something that allows it to kind of shed light on these broader themes? If we look at particularly since the Great Recession, the major struggles have been around public education, which we could put more broadly around social reproduction. 
that's where the action has been. And preceding that, if we look at a lot of cities, the imposition of the neoliberal agenda, it's kind of gone in stages. And in the 90s, you saw the big focus under the Clinton administration, demolishing public housing. That was kind of really critical to the makeover of many cities. New York was kind of a holdout. And now it looks like under Biden and this character Adams, they're going to be moving there. But Most other cities, including Minneapolis, Chicago, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, New Orleans, it was kind of in the 90s. And then we see in the the late 90s going into the 21st century, the move is around public education. And that's really connected to to the real estate piece as well. I mean, that's a central argument. And then we begin to see some fightbacks beginning in the, uh, you know, with the red state revolts and then in Chicago, New Orleans, Philly. And and with the pandemic, that's become even more central as well. So I do think the whole fight around public education and how that is deeply connected to economic restructuring, urban economic restructuring, makes the Newark case speak to to, uh, struggles more broadly. So then let's dive a little more into the actual details of the Newark story. Basically, what I want to do here is just walk through, you know, this puzzle of how corporate school reform won out under Baraka. But I think moving into that, I want to ask you to say a little bit about why the privatization of public education became such a high priority issue for a lot of political and economic elites in and around Newark. And the reason I want to just hear you say a little bit about that, you mentioned like the connection to real estate. I think for a lot of people with an issue like public housing, that connection is pretty obvious, right? Like they want the land, clear the way. With public education, it's a little more, it can be a little more murky for people. So what is the basic sort of like what's, you know, materially at stake for a lot of these elites with pushing privatization of public education? Why did it become so crucial to them? Why did this issue emerge as such a high priority issue when it did? Right. There are various levels. I mean, one is this is a huge pot of money. This is the major source of dollars of state spending. That's the biggest, biggest chunk of money. And we did see the real slashing of that in 2008 at the university level. There's a great article by the New York Times about the decline in college enrollment uh, and making the link to the cuts and increase in tuition, but also at the K through 12 level. There's the edu business sector (laughs) that wants to get a piece of that action. That's part of the efforts to privatize. But also, yeah, there's the real estate angle, which I thought was particularly important in Newark and is not as dressed as much in other studies of, of privatization. And so one angle is when you are attracting upper income gentrifiers to the city, you want to give them options. There's a good study on Hoboken, New Jersey, which has become very upscale over the last several decades. It's a professor, I can't recall her name, but she teaches at CUNY as well at the Gutman uh, School. The uh, charter school there has basically been colonized by the new upper income gentry that has come into the city. And to, to have those amenities is a, an important good to attract the upper income residents that these gentrifying cities are, are looking after. But in addition, in the Newark case, I saw the, the location of the charters, where they were placing them, was central to the uh, regeneration of the downtown neighborhood, which was a major focus. And particularly, they're moving from office buildings to 24-hour a living downtown. And so we have a major focus of the book, where I actually live for a time, is the, uh, the Teacher's Village, which combines street-level retail, 
upscale housing and uh, charter schools altogether and massively subsidized. And so, you know, I think that kind of the edu business sector, but as well as the real estate piece are really important as a driving force for the privatization of public education, along with the ideological commitment of the philanthrocapitalists, I call them, that have been funding the movement. Yeah. So you've got this push, this you know, privatization of public education becomes this important issue for all these reasons you discuss. Enter Cory Booker as the kind of guy who's going to lead the charge. You know, he's working with Chris Christie. They're on Oprah. He's getting money from Zuckerberg. There's a lot of resources and weight being put behind this effort to accomplish corporate school reform in Newark. So why then, you know, was Booker's administration ultimately not fully successful uh, in achieving that? You know, what uh, what went wrong for them? So. On one level, it was very successful in this building this movement from above. Even before he was elected in 2006, he was clearly identified with the privatization movement, first kind of in vouchers and then moving toward charter schools. His uh, coming out, so to speak, was a, a, an address to the Manhattan Institute. That was even in the late 90s or early, I think in the early 2000s. He arrives in, in Newark in like 97, 98, after he finishes at Yale. And uh, so he was clearly identified with those that wanted to open up a public education. And majority black cities were clearly a target. I consider them kind of the weak link in the whole Keynesian public school uh, network. And so he comes into office and he has some major financial backers uh, behind him. And it's right after 2006, it's right after Hurricane Katrina, 2005, and many of the major philanthropies, Walton, Gates, the wife of the Apple founder, they get together and target three cities to really push forward where they think there's possibilities for growth. And they're all majority black cities, Newark, Washington, D.C., and uh, New Orleans. And Booker plays an important role part in attracting them to Newark. And they're able to bring in, and this is one of the things I found problematic with a lot of the studies of privatization, is that the kind of theoretical models that were used, kind of the racial justice framework. I know this can kind of be controversial criticizing critical race theory, but there can be kind of a left critique of critical race theory and racial capitalism in that they use what Cedric Johnson calls black organicism. They don't really see real differences among the black community. And you've got to have a real class analysis to understand what's going on in these struggles. And so Booker was really successful in developing, bringing in new layers of what Adolph Reed calls the black professional managerial class, the BPMC. Booker himself is a, is a, is a a central part of that layer. And so he was able to bring a number of those players from Newark into the movement to privatize public education while also kind of moving out some of the old guard, the old, what I call the old BPMC, who were kind of benefited and tied to some of the Keynesian public school model. And so he was successful in doing that. And then the turning point in the movement was when Christie was elected in 2009, and they cut a deal, basically, because also the local school district since the mid-90s had been under state control. 
which was part of pushing through privatization. But they wanted to really push it forward. And so there you had an alliance, bipartisan alliance, between the pugnacious Chris Christie, who's originally from Newark. I go over that in the historical section. Some people might find that of interest. And Booker to basically put through a shock therapy, New Orleans-style mass privatization of the school system. And then, of course, on top of the philanthropic earlier money, they get the Zuckerberg money in 20, uh, 2010 that's unveiled at the Oprah Winfrey show, which put the national spotlight on Newark, on Booker, Christie. And that, of course, was praised by Oprah, you know, another billionaire, about you know bipartisan cooperation to put through what they consider a re- renaissance of education. Well, I guess they do. Yeah, they call the charters public schools, and that's a, you know, that's an intermovement struggle around that. So he was very successful in mobilizing this elite movement from above, but he floundered in his attempts to get buy-in, popular buy-in, which they attempted. The head of Bayo, Black Alliance for Educational Opportunities, Howard Fuller, former Black Nationals, he was really important in attempting to generate popular support. They did get a lot of the ministers, Black ministers, in support. And uh, and there was attempts, they brought in one of these consultants that Tusk, that was very close from the Bloomberg administration. I mean, a lot of the personnel for the privatization were brought over across the river from the Bloomberg administration. And Bloomberg was a big supporter, opening up his wallet for Booker's ascent and Booker's program. But that really floundered. They were never able to generate that popular support. And so by 2012, that's when you begin seeing, even a little bit earlier, well, around 2012, between the insurgent Oh, and let me backtrack. We'd have to throw in the union leadership. That was a success in getting them on board also in going along with this. Uh, They were very cooperative. But then you begin to see the emergence of a rank-and-file reform movement within the New York Teachers Union, the Newark Education Workers, and then, most dramatically, the Newark Students Union, uh, who begin a grassroots struggle against the, the privatization, the cuts, and the privatization agenda. So question actually that just came up for me when I was listening to this is a lot of what you're describing in terms of the things the Booker administration tried to do. I might be wrong about this, so correct me if I'm wrong. It feels like these are a lot of things that maybe used to work in terms of if not building a strong, you know, mass base of support for your your agenda, maybe um, you know, making sure a mass base of opposition doesn't emerge. You know, bringing in the ministers, um, maybe getting some union leaders on board. You know, getting something you talk a lot about in the previous book, getting, you know, a lot of nonprofit support around you. And these things sort of didn't work, which seems to, you know, indicate, I think you, you know, talk about this in the book, a kind of different stage in the the sort of development of black urban regimes in the United States and kind of in terms of how the, the contradictions they face have evolved, the kinds of strategies they need to use to address them. Is that kind of what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to go after public housing, which they did in Newark. The James regime, James was the preceding mayor to uh, Sharp James, to Booker, and he oversaw mass demolition. But with the schools, he wasn't ready to go there. And I think that's one reason the powers that be wanted to kind of move him out. He had been there for five terms. But also public education, I don't think, had been demonized to the same extent it wasn't it, to the same extent of public housing. It covered 
a much broader swath of the population. It, it was a bigger challenge for the ruling class to go after public education as opposed to public housing. So I think that also had effect. And I, I think there's a beginning, as you document in Minneapolis and we saw in other places, I think in the wake of the Great Recession, a weakening of the neoliberal agenda. And we're beginning to see some fightbacks. And uh, Newark was not, you know, an outlier in that respect. You know, the same toolbox, they went to it, the same one they use in many other neoliberal reforms. It was not successful this time around, at least for a time. Yeah, right. Reminds me a lot of part of a book you draw on a lot, actually, uh, Francis Fox Piven's Challenging Authority. She talks in there about sort of this lag between shifts in conditions and the repertoire of contention uh, a movement's going to use and how there's, you know, it takes some time to kind of work those things out. And that sort of seems like what you're seeing here. A sort of sub question to the one I just asked and, you know, one you spend a lot of time talking about. How did this movement that ultimately put a block in front of some of the Booker administration's plans, how did it emerge? You mentioned some of the key actors, but who was really the lead of this movement? Who did a lot of the work to get it going? Yeah, and going back to your last point about from Piven, it takes a while. So it did take a while. I mean, a movement emerged, but Booker's beginning in 06. The second wave is kind of 10 and 11. So it's really by 2012, a few years after he's begun this push, that kind of resistance emerges. And so one is within the union. So Booker gets the money from Zuckerberg in 2010. And the first thing he wants is he wants a superintendent, a CEO superintendent, right? That's And so these new philanthropists, different from the earlier kind of turn of the century robber barons that had a little bit more of a idea of serving the public. They want to keep a tight control over their investments, right? That's not grants, they're investments. And they want to see outcomes. And one of them was to put through a CEO superintendent that's going to transform radically the district, particularly around teachers and the teacher contract. Uh, so they do get, uh, again, drawing from the Bloomberg re regime, Cami Anderson, who's a real militant. I mean, she was a real true believer. She came out of Teach for America, and she really saw this effort to privatize public education as a real anti-racist mission, that teachers were a real problem. And so they name her in the spring of 2011, and she moves with the state education, head of the, the secretary of education at the state level, Chris Cerf, another movement militant that Christie put in to renegotiate the uh, teacher union contract to put in a lot of neoliberal reforms, to be able to close schools more easily, to be able to fire ineffective teachers, to reward successful teachers measured by the test scores. She came in and uh, with the assistance of Randy Weingarten, the head of the AFT, Cerf basically told her, you know, either you sign this contract and agree to these reforms or we're going to do a New Orleans on you. You know, we're going to charterize the whole district, fire all the teachers. And typical of what the union bureaucracy has done over the neoliberal period, they are realistic. And so they go to the table and consensually introduce these neoliberal reforms. So with Randy Weingarten at the, the national level, and who knew Cerf, who had been also in the Bloomberg, <laughs> Bloomberg administration, and his uh, neoliberal reforms of the, of the system there, the expansion of charters. And so they put through kind of a treasure chest of 
what the, the movement from above, the charter movement, wanted. And in the midst of this, a rank-and-file movement, the Newark education workers, who were influenced by the core reform group that took over the Chicago Union, and then some of the efforts in, in L.A. emerged, and they had a vote-no campaign, an educational campaign uh, on the contract. They didn't defeat the contract, but they garnered quite a bit of support. And so out of that fight against the contract emerges this uh, union caucus reform group, the new. It had kind of a social movement understanding of unions, that it's about defending the teachers and their interests, but also fighting for the students and the broader community. And this gets back to your earlier question about the importance of these struggles around education. Although they don't have the same power as auto workers or the rail workers who are most pro-labor president in decades uh, blocked from striking or the longshoremen, longshore workers, we got to get rid of that gendered language. Uh, they don't have that kind of power, but they do have what Jane McAlevey talks about, that interdependent relationship and McAlevey studied with, with Piven, so it makes, <laughs> not surprising she draws from her ideas, that interdependent relationships with their students. That's a real source of power. But to be able to activate that, you have to be able to raise common demands and common struggles. And so that was part of the vision of the new labor insurgency, which was diametrically opposed, distinct from the, the existing leadership in the teachers' union. And so that begins to emerge as an important force. Following that, in the fall of 2012, was the Newark Students' Union. And they emerged with the help of radical teachers that were involved in the, the Newark education workers. And so there was that symbiotic relationship. And they were influential. There was also a debate team that also had played an important part in cultivating critical consciousness among the students and developing new leaders. Let me backtrack a little bit. In, in 2010, there had been kind of a popcorn, what Patrick Bond calls popcorn protest. When Christie first came in, he slashed the education budget. It was almost one-to-one dollar for the tax cuts he gave to the rich and the cuts to public education, which is the biggest chunk of state budgets. And so that sparked a big protest, mass walkouts across the state. Newark was one of the largest ones. It did not sustain itself, but out of that, some of the students had participated as freshmen in their later years, become important leaders of this Newark Students' Union. They are combined with the successor to ACORN uh, after the implosion of ACORN. When, that was kind of right after Katrina, what, 2010, around there. And there was a, a, a new group that, that emerges to kind of fill the, the market that ACORN had. They were aligned with the unions as well. And one of their organizers who passed away recently, his relationship with the Newark Student Union were important. He played a positive role in helping mobilize opposition to the cuts and to the privatization. And so on a disruptive level, so that's one of the anchoring concepts along with this idea of racial democracy, which we'll get to. But what Francis Fox Piven talks about is disruptive power, the ability to withdraw cooperation from interdependent relationships. So the one between the students and the school district. And uh, they carried out a number of walkouts, mass walkouts, occupations of the school board meetings. 
and street protests, street blockage, sometimes with some of the dissident teachers, but the students were the major force of disruptive protest, along with some community activist allies. So those were kind of the three prongs of the movement from below, the students and their student union, the dissident faction of the teachers union, and then assorted community activists. And uh, school board meetings were kind of a key terrain the walkouts, but also school board meetings. Excellent. So this brings us to Raz Baraka, who in some ways amplifies some of the claims of the movement and then really like rides into the mayor's office on the back of this movement from below and is proclaimed as a radical mayor. I can't remember if he actually called himself a radical mayor. He did. Yes. Okay. And is certainly advertised that way in different kinds of media. And yet, this is kind of the core puzzle here, he didn't really pursue the movement's most aspirational goals. I mean, that's putting it mildly, he didn't really, he went against a lot of the movement's most aspirational goals, which were, you know, stopping the rollout of charter schools and, you know, increasing support for public schools. So this kind of leads us with two questions. Um, One is, why, despite his connections to the movement from below, didn't Baraka try to push harder in an anti-neoliberal direction? I mean, was he always just kind of the way he was when he went into office? Did he pull the wool over people's eyes or did something happen when he got elected? What, What sort of explains that? And then also ultimately like how, and this is the kind of question that gets to the crux of your argument, how did he ultimately succeed where Booker didn't? Again, if not succeeding in building a fully supportive mass base, uh, he at least succeeded in making sure a fully oppositional mass base didn't keep going against him. Well, yeah, let's give a little background on on Ross Brock, who's a very capable, fascinating political official. He is about the same age as Cory Booker, but a different trajectory. Cory grew up in an affluent suburb in the New Jersey suburbs, not far from Newark, about 20, 30 minutes. And he had some connections with Newark growing up. I think his dentist was there, and I think the Baptist church his family attended. His parents worked as executives for Xerox in New York. Was it IBM or Xerox? One of those big <laughs> big companies. And they were beneficiaries of the gains of the civil rights movement, being able to buy a house despite discrimination they faced in, in the suburbs. In a, it was a very affluent Harrington Park, and then being able to work in, in, in corporate America. Whereas Raz Baraka, he grew up in Newark. His father was the famed activist Amiri Baraka, and he was kind of brought up in the movement. He goes to uh, Howard University, which his father attended. He was an activist there. They led sit-ins against Lee Atwater, who was on the board of trustees of Howard, who constructed the whole racist, the Willie Horton ads for the old man George Bush and his campaign. And I think he did have to, they forced him out from the board of trustees. And he came back to his hometown, was involved in anti-police brutality protests, and while working as a teacher and working his way up, eventually becoming a principal at Central High. And he tried, but he was eventually brought into the James administration after he ran for mayor himself as a young man, uh, and then did win a seat in the predominantly black uh, South Ward of Newark in 2010. Kind of as Barack is consolidating his power, and when uh, he makes this agreement with Christie to put through this shock therapy privatization agenda, he had lost a number of races. And then as this movement builds, kind of his career advances. And then as Booker's program 
collapses by, by 2012, 2013, and he jumps to the U.S. Senate. Then you see Raz Baraka throws his hat in the ring. And it's clearly the issue is of the mayoral race in 2014. It's a clear battle around public education. It's the movement from above and the movement from below. His opponent is Shavar Jeffries, who comes from humble background in Newark, went to private school, then to Columbia, Duke, Columbia University. Not as prestigious as Booker, but, but up there. And although Booker doesn't openly back him, he is the all-but-anointed successor of Cory Booker and the privatization agenda. He comes out of the movement. He's with uh, Team Academy, with the KIPP uh, charter chain. He's on the school board where he uh, advocates for, for charters. And he gets huge amounts of money. He outspends Baraka by dramatic proportions. I mean, Baraka's money basically came from organized labor, from the labor unions. And Baraka aligns with the movement. So he does help advance it. He gets in there. He's pushing forward the protest. Although he always emphasizes it's not against charters. He does emphasize that. I'm not against charters, but against the state control and against the reforms that uh, Cammie Anderson, who I mentioned earlier, the, the movement superintendent, the CEO superintendent, who is ramming those through. And he does have a real base. And so unlike Booker, who is not able to generate that popular support, because he didn't have the same trajectory, the same legacy. And he was always trying to shake off that image of the outsider, the opportunist. And there is a wariness in Newark of the outsider. And so I don't think he could shake that. In contrast, Baraka had deep roots in the community, had real legitimacy. His father dies in the midst of the campaign, and, and Sister Solja, who speaks at Amiri Baraka's funeral, said this was his last political <laughs> intervention to die in the middle of the campaign, which they turned into, as the New York Times said, a campaign event. And so he had some real authority, real organic connections. He came out of the school district, and he did portray this as a real struggle against the opportunistic forces that were using our movement, right? Because they called Booker to legitimate it, right? Call it the civil rights movement of our day. That is the movement ideology from above. This is a progressive to deal with the racial learning gap, uh, the achievement gap, a racialized achievement gap. The charters were about to, to address that. And these uncaring teacher unions were an obstacle. So Baraka does ride that, and he does consider himself a radical mayor. He used those words in his inauguration in 2014. So he rides that movement. But at the same time, and this was the contradictions reflected during his campaign, he's giving these radical speeches aligned with this movement from below. He's running with their funds, at least from organized labor. But at the same time, he's meeting with the corporate interest to reassure them that he's someone that they can play with, that they can play ball with. And there's a really telling meeting. I open up chapter, I think, six with that, where he meets with the, you know, it's like the business roundtable of the Newark region. And he says, look, you know, I got this image. You know, you hear the Baracas, radical, and all that goes along with that. You have this image, but look, I'm not going to shut down all the charter schools. I'm not going to run out all the business from Newark. I'm someone that you can deal with. And so we kind of had to play that game of reassuring 
that he's someone that they could deal with, that he supported the redevelopment, which there's a, a lot of money coming in under Booker. And it goes even farther under Barack. I mean, you should come down to just in the 10 years that I've been in Newark, there's been this massive makeover of the downtown. I just came back. I had been away and there's this huge couple new high rises sprouting up in downtown. And the charter schools, as I've mentioned there, and I have a nice map in the book, shows that they clustered in this downtown area. So there was a real connection between the rent intensification agenda and the charter schools. And so he couldn't go after them. But at the same time, he's tied to this movement that is opposed to the charter schools and the privatization. How does he thread that needle? You have to be very talented. I, you know, he's, and that's what I think the, the change is. We're going to need more Barakas as the movement strengthens. And I do see with my politics, I guess you always are going to be, what did Gramsci say? A pessimism of the intellect. Uh, I, I always forgot that one. But you, you think the, the, the movement is going to kind of be right around the corner. But there are real positive signs. And I think you're going to need more people like Baraka that can kind of ride these tigers. And so what Baraka does is increasingly after he's elected and they drive out the superintendent, Cami Anderson, a year after him taking power, and a mass walkout, the largest of the three to four year insurgency, 2015, massive walkout, and she is pushed out. And then they put in another character, Chris Cerf, who I mentioned earlier, who is also a leading movement militant as the superintendent. But there's a commitment from Christie. He's launching a new presidential candidacy. Well, he was doing that in 2016, 2015, 2016. It didn't go very far. It crashed and burned in New Hampshire. Christie needed to solve things. He needed to quiet Newark for him to launch his campaign. And so they cut a deal to get out Anderson and put in this new character, but have a roadmap. There's a roadmap to local control. And so this becomes the overwhelming focus that we need to get self-determination. This black and brown city who is put in this neo-colonial situation since the mid-1990s when the state took over control of the local district, right? An anti-democratic move, a fascist move, he called that, that we are going to get back local control. But he separated that. So that's a racial democratic agenda. We want to have equal distribution of the goods and bads. It's kind of an anti-disparitarian as it played out in schools. The suburbs get to control their district. We should as well. So the focus became self-determination, but separated from the issue of privatization. And so he turned a blind eye for the most part. He would make some noises about the further expansion, which was resided with the state. The state had power over approving new charters in the city. But the city had a lot of control. He could use his office as a bully pulpit against it. But also they had other controls, zoning controls. And so what we see after the removal of Anderson, that Baraka would make some speeches, criticisms of the expansions, but then do things concretely that he had control over, like zoning rules that allowed these new schools to emerge. And some of his allies called him out on that. Some of the nonprofit, the unions and this ACORN successor and the NAACP, they started calling out your double dealing. You know, what happened to this radical mayor that we put in office? And then you're allowing these schools to go up. You're making a political alliance with the charter movement to run candidates. So we want to have unity, right? It's all about unity after the election. We don't want this conflict. We want to make Newark governable again. 
as I titled the, the penultimate chapter. And he increasingly conciliates. And there is some opposition, but he's got the influence. He's got the unions that are allied with him. And they're not going to buck him. And the new had weakened, you know, so that assisted him. There's his powers and the influence of that racial democratic ideology that a lot of the left buys into. And so he was able to use that authority and then the weakening of the union opposition movement, kind of the exhaustion, they were defeated in an election to defeat the incumbent administration, the incumbent regime. And then the students, you know, that can be kind of ephemeral too. They leave, right? And it's like, you've got to create a new generation of activists and they were not kind of successful in doing that. And then I kind of end that, I mean, we can get into those questions. Well, what are the lessons and for building the movement that can succeed? So something we should just mention briefly, you're using these terms, racial democracy, social democracy. Uh, these are concepts you are pulling actually from another University of Minnesota Press book by Preston Smith is racial democracy in the black metropolis, which actually, you know, in a lot of ways dovetails quite nicely with Jay's book. So yeah, Jay, I want to, you know, go on where you left off and shift us into thinking some more about you know, some broad implications here about, you know, what you found in Newark. I want to start by asking a couple questions about kind of the central concept here, the thing that comes out a lot of your discussion of Baraka, which is anti-racism. The subtitle of the book is How Anti-Racist Politics Enable School Privatization in Newark. The first thing I want to ask you about is just, I think it's fair to say that on balance, a lot of scholarship about urban social movements and such engage in some of these similar questions feels a little bit more positively about anti-racism and anti-racist politics than comes out in this book. And I just want to know more about kind of what you think in general this scholarship is missing that comes out of the Newark case study. You know, I think a lot of these scholars who maybe see a kind of more positive role for anti-racist politics to play might like grant you the analysis of kind of your case, but then, you know, they would try to point to their own sort of counterexamples where they think by prioritizing anti-racism, they have examples where that's helped a, you know, redistributive or economic justice struggle to expand its base of support by, for example, providing a vehicle for connecting with various sorts of community organizations that might have thought about themselves in terms of pursuing racial justice and didn't previously maybe see a connection between racial justice and this you know, redistributive struggle over here. Or maybe they would point to cases where centering anti-racism has encouraged leaders of certain redistributive struggles to give more attention to kind of the full range of challenges facing poor and working class people in a particular city. And I'm thinking here of books like, you know, there was a book published several years ago, also by University of Minnesota Press called Workplace Justice by Sharon Kurtz, where she she's talking about organizing among Columbia clerical workers. And, you know, I think she kind of is someone who you know pushed a little bit more of this kind of positive spin. Or more recently, uh, yeah, another example of this kind of book I would think of is uh, Justice at Work. I recently listened to uh, the actually University of Minnesota podcast interview with the authors, and I think they seem to kind of embrace some of these kinds of arguments about the potential benefits of centering anti-racism and economic justice or redistributive struggles. So my question is, you know, from your perspective as someone who engaged in this activism and studied this case in Newark, what are some of these more positive appraisals, you know, maybe overlooking? What what are they not not paying enough attention to in their analyses. And I know you maybe can't speak to those specific ones I just raised, but just in, in general, what are you finding that's missing sometimes in other kinds of scholarship that offers a more positive appraisal of anti-racist politics in urban politics? 
Right. So I got to begin with the newer case and the reality that I was seeing on the ground was this powerful movement very powerful forces, right, backing this privatization agenda led by this very talented mayor, Cory Booker. And then there's another counter movement that emerges. But then we see what happens. This privatization continues, right? That was what the movement was about. So what is going on? And then you've got to go to theory, right? So what explains, what can provide some direction to find out what's actually happening on the ground? And that's where I found some of the work like Christian Buris, who wrote on New Orleans, you know, it was the black community. They were just kind of spectators to all this, right? There was no real, and I see this in a a number of other works looking around, particularly in education, but other issues. It's looking at the black community. Well, we got a, as Adolph Reed talked about in another collection of his essays in another University of Minnesota press, I encourage you to go out there and get it, stirrings in the jug, right? He said, you got to bust open the jug to see what's really going on. And so that moved me to the work of Preston Smith, you know, Adolf Reed I had drawn from, but it's the, I call it the, I think it's a school. It's really the materialist school of post-civil rights black politics. So I drew from Reed, uh, Cedric Johnson, uh, Torre Reed, and maybe the anchoring concept in book was Preston Smith's uh, racial democracy and the black metropolis. And so there he's looking at struggles around housing in the 30s and then particularly in the post-World War II era, where the Jim Crow has not been you know, killed, but there's still, you got to have a class analysis to understand what was going on. And ever more so in the post-civil rights period and in the context of these black urban regimes. And so I saw that you had to have this real class analysis. And I thought this dichotomy between racial democracy, this fight for the equal distribution or equal opportunity and in a radical form, you know, the radical edge and anti-disparitarian framework where you want an equal distribution of the goods and bads. If there's African-Americans are 13% of the population, they should be 13% of the billionaires, 13% of those living in poverty, 13% of those living next to toxic waste facilities, right? We don't want to get rid of that stuff. We want an equal distribution. That's kind of the idea. We could call that the ideal of justice under neoliberalism, right? You don't want to get rid of inequality, just an equal distribution along axes of race, gender, but not class, of course. And then there's the other ideal of social democracy, where there's an equal access to the necessities of life, regardless of class. And sometimes, as I'm not saying, obviously, there's racism. <laughs> I'm not arguing that. And, and we want to have the racial democracy. But when, and this is what Smith emphasizes, this is what Reed emphasized, Johnson, Tory Reed. Sometimes they run together, right? And and Preston Smith talks about that. There's kind of a tension, but they can kind of run together. But what we increasingly see is a fracturing between the two. So yes, they should get local control, but at the expense of or ignoring the other piece. And in fact, when you don't end the privatization, it's an empty prize to say self-determination. Because what are you determining over? The place has been privatized. You know, those charter schools, they're totally anti-democratic. The city doesn't have, the school board doesn't have any real substantive control over that. So when you, you're not really getting self-determination. 
But if you're tied to a development agenda in which charters are central to the revitalization of the city, you do have to separate the two. Ras Baraka does. And that's why you got to have a class analysis. You have to understand the role of the black professional managerial class and their relationship to the corporate elite. And that's where those other frameworks are blind to that. Whereas the materialist school of post-civil rights black politics, the scholars that I mentioned, open up and shed light on the real dynamics that are going on in black politics, which I'm focused on. And we see this more broadly with the rise of Sanders. And I'll have a critique of the Democratic Party that's in there, but the point is he did put in a strong social democratic agenda on the, the mainstream political agenda, decommodifying healthcare, education, and a number of areas of American right to a job. And he was attacked. So at one point, they're kind of separate, right? They're just focusing on racial democracy to the exclusion of social democracy. Now what we saw with the Sanders campaign, that racial democracy was used as a weapon to attack the demands for social democracy. The contradictions became particularly sharp. I'm saying, no, you got to have both. But in this case, they're using the racial democracy, the political elite and those allied to them to accommodate the neoliberal agenda. And our movements have to be cognizant of that. I mean, we can look in Atlanta right now with Cop City. They're using a lot of that, some of those type of politics to go after the, the Cop City opponents. So again, I think we've got to break open the jug of black politics. Smith is writing about in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, it was important, you know, but ever more so in this period where the class divisions among African Americans are even more marked than the runaway inequality, which we see in the United States political economy as a whole. So it's really important if you, if you don't have that class analysis, you're lost. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's one thing to be anti-racist. And of course, any left you would place a positive label on, or I would, would be one that is anti-racist. It's quite another to substitute anti-racism for a class analysis or substitute an anti-racist analysis for a class analysis. And it's hard because where that substitution is going to end up, I think, isn't always clear at the beginning. So you know, you're in a meeting, someone says, I'm sick of all this charter schools, this is colonialism, this is this colonial relationship we have with the state, it can feel like, yeah, okay, you know, you're kind of with your friends, or whatever people are arguing, like, we're all on the same side. But then as things sort of evolve, this argument that is operating as a sort of substitute for, you know, looking at some of the sort of class elements that underlie charterization, you're all of a sudden creating a potential tool that someone in the sort of movement above can use to split your movement, fragment it, potentially divert it into just focusing, in this case, on local control and all of a sudden not paying attention to some of this other stuff. Is that a fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and then when you do separate the two, like Reed says, the, the, the race line, the anti-racism becomes a class line. I mean, that's what I was arguing, that what they were projecting as anti-racism was really about protecting the class agenda of the movement from above. Our movements, they have to be anti-racist, right? If they are not, that's how those in power can exploit them. And so, for example, the Booker's, this is the civil rights movement of our day. 
I mean, they did tap into something real. The teacher unions didn't have a social movement agenda. It was a very narrow agenda. And we saw that in new work, and I get into that in the historical piece around the struggles, the public sector movement of the late 1960s going into the 1970s, where where they first won in strikes in 1970 and 71 collective bargaining rights, collective bargaining contracts. I mean, there were different tendencies, but the dominant one was kind of this narrow bread and butter unionism that saw the teachers in conflict with the students and their families, which in the Newark case had a really racialized dynamic. And we saw the Brownsville struggle in New York City under the reactionary AFT, UFT leadership of Shanker, Albert Shanker. There was a kernel of good sense in that critique of the narrowness of the teachers union. So, yeah, we have to be anti-racist, but when you separate and sometimes to frame it as this racial justice struggle undermines the effort to fight, really fight the racial inequities. I mean, I have a critique of the reparations movement, which is kind of a class agenda. You've got to fight racism, but you're not going to be able to do that when you hive it off from a class agenda. And that's what we're increasingly seeing, the way in which anti-racism is used as a tool to beat back those social democratic, socialist demands and, and platform. So I want to shift gears now a little bit to the discussion of social movements. As you say in the book, Expelling Public Schools is very much a book about competing social movements. But it just sort of struck me that the way you kind of conceptualize and study social movements is actually somewhat distinct from what you find in sort of traditional social movement scholarship. You know, I think in a lot of traditional social movement work I have encountered in my life, in my sort of studying, social movements are kind of approached as a discrete object of analysis. There's a group of activists in a room, you're studying them. The way you seem to approach it, a social movement or to talk about social movements is almost like instead of being like an object analysis, it's almost like a a frame of analysis, the way something like game theory is a frame of analysis. So for you, studying social movements isn't just about examining groups of activists. It's about seeing politics and society first and foremost as a site of struggle and then thinking about all actors in terms of how they're positioned vis-a-vis different parts of that struggle. I guess I just wanted to ask, you know, if you could say a little bit more about how you approach the study of social movements, what makes that approach somewhat distinct? You call it a Marxist approach. And, you know, what do we gain from making that shift with you? You know, when I came into graduate school, I kind of had two different stages. I was in Latin American studies in the 90s, the early 90s, and then sociology began in the late 90s. But I was always gravitated to social movement stuff, but I found it problematic in the way they kind of separated. It was contrasted with the experiences I had on the ground between class issues and social movements, right? And that's where U.S. social movement theory is kind of a reaction that, you know, there's the labor movement and then these other movements. That class analysis can't kind of really understand the civil rights movement, uh, women's movement, environmental movement, non-materialist, supposedly. And I think that's really problematic, and it doesn't capture what's going on in the ground. And so I really uh, found the work of Alf Nilsson and Lawrence Cox, who are not U.S.-based social scientists in Ireland and Norway, 
but they have a great book, edited book with a, a couple of other authors. But then Nielsen and Cox have another work on their own, but it's a Marxist analysis. So it's bringing back class and Marx into social movements. And I just found that their work, kind of this processual understanding of social movements, the potential development from the micro to societal transformation is really helpful. It's not automatic, it's a potential. And if you're interested, which I am, and how do we bring about a real radical restructuring of American and global society, political economy, that's the type of theory we need. And so that spoke to, you know, my political interest and political agenda. There's a connection between the, our values, our polit- politics, the theories, the methodologies we use, they're all interconnected. If we want to really develop a movement, those are the type of theories that can get movements moving again, right? And they talk about that. And the work of Rosa Luxemburg and her theory of the mass strike, which I think more people need to read because it speaks to the conjuncture that we're in, that we're seeing mass strikes. There was a recent article by Chris Misano, is on Jacobin, but it was basically about, they don't use the language. And that's a problem. We don't have that theory. But they're pointing to this phenomena of these mass mobilizations that we've seen. They're basically mass strike process, kind of the spontane- somewhat spontaneous. But they haven't been able to move forward. You know, and I think in drawing from the Newark case and, and engaging with Nilsson and Cox and Luxembourg, that key to this is agreeing on a common program, a common alternative program that moves society forward and agreeing on those common demands of political and economic demands, they're connected to your immediate struggle, but they go beyond that. That is really crucial to pushing our movements forward and particularly advancing when these mass strike movements emerge, which you can't predict, right? You can't, but they, we are in a period of mass strike. That is a reality. And I think this theory And this idea of developing common demands, democratic organization, is key to advancing our movement. And we could see in the Newark case, there wasn't clear demands of what the movement wanted. And I think that was part of one factor, an important factor, in Baraka's ability to kind of take it in that racial democracy direction and eventually contain the movement. So yeah, I don't think a lot of that other theory, the dominant resource mobilization, and even where some people have taken political process model, although McAdams' work, which is seminal for social movement, does have a lot of political economy, but that eventually becomes jettisoned in the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. I think it's very fruitful to turning to this kind of critical approach to social movements represented by Nielsen and Cox works and, and Luxembourg. Let me jump in there. You know, first of all, thank you for mentioning uh, Rosa Luxemburg. One of the things I was going to ask you about is to sort of just give a plug for her work because it's so clearly influential for you. And it's something that you just don't see discussed a lot, at least in kind of academic discussions of social movements in the U.S. And I have this memory of at one point you were a uh, peer reviewer for a journal article I was having reviewed and you gave the plug there. You very much pushed me to read her. And that's actually when I first read Rosa Luxemburg. And you were right. She was really helpful. And reading her essay on the mass strike in particular was a really beneficial thing for me. But building off of what you were just saying, and you talk about how is it Nielsen and Cox lay out different potential sort of stages of movements and how there's this goal. Generally, the the goal is to go from kind of more defensive and particular to more aspirational and general. 
you know, my sense is that at least a certain kind of person on on the left or left academics, left organizers see the key mechanism needed to kind of make that jump, make that shift is to achieve a kind of independent presence in the party system, that the movements need to have a political party for which they are the anchor. And that's what helps to create that generalization and sort of the elephant in the room for the left movements in the US, certainly in Newark, is that such a party does not exist and you know isn't really likely to emerge. That this is sort of precisely, or at least partly why things like Baraka's neoliberal anti-racism or the nonprofit sector, which you discuss more in Driven from New Orleans, can exert such a strong pull. It's because there isn't a party to sort of channel everything in a different direction. So I guess the question I wanted to ask for you, it comes up a little bit in the book, but I wanted you to speak more about it is, you know, what are your thoughts on how movements from below, like the one you studied in Newark, can sort of deal with this? And it's clear you know, there's this moment in the book where you talk about this exchange you had with Karen Lewis, who was the former president of the Chicago Teachers Union about running for mayor in Chicago on the Democratic ballot. It's clear you don't like this idea of trying to sort of infiltrate and realign the Democratic Party. That's not the sort of workaround for you. So the question is, what's the alternative here? And one thing you mention in the book that might be a vehicle for talking about this is this idea of the popular assembly. And, you know, you go into some about that, but is that a partial answer to this problem about how we make this step in the presence of a party system where there isn't a, you know, strong labor left party? And it do- again, it doesn't really seem like there's going to be one anytime in the near future. Um, I mean, I think the Newark case and the Baraka case is a testament of the old adage that social movements go to die in the Democratic Party. (laughs) That was just another further example of that. I'm arguing, and this is a contentious issue within social movements, right? The whole issue of the relationship with the Democratic Party. I mean, the reality is in places like Newark, in many urban centers, they are one party regime. They're one party states, right? There is no Republican Party. I mean, I actually did run for office and I tried to contact the Republicans. They're like non-existent. Now, in Newark's case, there was like factions of the Democratic Party. There were supposedly nonpartisan races, but Jeffries was a Democrat, so was Baraka. But Jeffries was aligned with the county Democratic Party, the county boss, Joseph DiVincenzo, who's very much connected to the charter movement. So there was this split in the Democratic Party, but once Baraka gets in power, he allies with them. They consolidate, and he moves toward their agenda, accommodates to that agenda. I think the only leverage that we have is that if we do have some independent politics, but that are democratically controlled, and not separated from the movement. So I think I talk about that movement politics, right? Movement candidates. And so we have to have one democratic control. I mean, we're seeing that with the DSA. That's a huge issue. You got these, their candidates, they do what the hell they want in total contradiction to the platforms, to the democratically arrived platforms. That's what we've got to have is real democratic control and some kind of sanctions when they break. Now, Baraka was a prime example of that. He was the movement standard bearer. He was out there, got their endorsements. I'm with you. He talked about when I come to power, we come to power, right? Use this kind of populist, grassroots democratic language. I'm a radical mayor. He does what the hell he wants once he gets in power. There is no exercise of control. 
the real power is in disruptive power, disruptive protest. You've got to have a movement in the streets. But it will be strengthened with a democratically controlled electoral arm. And where movements come together, it's not going to be this vanguard party. Luxembourg was very critical of Lenin. But how movements can come together, what Les Leopold, in his work, Runaway Inequality, advisor to the CWA who I have some problems with. But he talks about our need to get out of these silos. I mean, we've got all these different separate issues, single-issue groups that are doing some good work, but you're not really going to change the power dynamics unless you can come together. And there was some movements toward that in Newark when I talk about the Popular Assembly we had in 2013. The anti-war groups, healthcare, education, the environment, you know, we can go down the line, prison, policing. If we can come together with common demands, running our own candidates, but also coming together to fight in our different terrains, but also coming back with what we want. And that's the only way you get any concessions, is if you fight for what you want, and then you begin to get those. If not, you basically you know, set the terms for retreat, for the terms of defeat. I think the example historically and what we are seeing in the contemporary context is that the movements we do have to have, but democratically controlled an electoral arm. Not like the Greens just run a candidate, but there's really no connection to the movements in the streets. Or, you know, the Vanguard Party that runs their get behind us. I think the alternative approach of movements coming together on common programs, and that's what Luxembourg talked about to lay the groundwork. You can't call a mass strike, but you can agree on common demand. So when these movement merges, they can go farther. I think that is the lessons that I draw from the Newark case for you know, pushing our movement forward. And we are in a dangerous period. Clearly, the neoliberal project, some people call it zombie neoliberalism, you know, it keeps going on, but it has lost what base of popular support of consent that it had obtained in the previous decades. You know, and we're seeing these ugly forces on the right. And unless we can, can kind of fill a vacuum, which the Democrats can't, we've got a real ugly future ahead of us. And I point to the Greek tragedy of Syriza, which is really coming forward. The people were ready to fight. They had the referendum in 2015 to reject austerity to fight, and they betrayed it because there was no, just like Newark, (laughs) we didn't control. When he cut the deal with Christie, we had no control, just like the movement had no control over Cyprus. You know, from my perspective, from that engagement with Newark and my other experiences in, in engaging theory, that's the lesson I take from Newark. And hopefully, as Kenneth Gibson said, wherever the country's going, Newark will get there first. Well, hopefully, we got there first to learn the lessons, and others will take those lessons in the, in the movements that are emerging and will emerge in the coming years and decades. Final, very particular question. Has anything changed in Newark since the conclusion of this book? Baraka still mayor. Have any of those dynamics shifted? Are there any new openings for the movement from below to have a resurgence? Or are we still sort of in the same spot? Well, first of all, this has been a great interview. This has really just flowed nicely. You're a great interviewer. What's happening? You know, I was just talking with Al Musab, who's one of the major protagonists of the book. He was one of the teachers in one of the founders of the Newark Education Workers. And we were commenting that things were hopping in Newark in the teens and into the under Trump because we had the big school movement 
And then this is, it takes a while after one project, as you probably well know, but I'd like to begin a study of the successful movement in New Jersey and in Newark to close all the ICE detention centers. There were four, three run by the deep blue Democratic counties in northern New Jersey, including Essex, where Newark is. Newark is the county seat. And then there's one private one, which is on the ropes, but the Biden administration just came to the rescue and uh, sided with the for-profit prison operation CoreCivic to keep it open, even though the state had passed legislation to close all the ICE camps. So another betrayal on the, the Biden administration, another argument for our need for our own political arm. Another betrayal. He said he was going to close all the private prisons. He's doing the exact opposite in New Jersey and, and across the country. But uh, there was a real strong movement under Trump Although these camps had existed under Obama, it took off under Trump. It was a really strong movement. But now things have kind of... And and Barack was put on the defensive in that struggle as well because he was aligned with the county that was maintaining these. But at the same time, he said Newark was a a sanctuary city. And yet they had one of the biggest ice concentration camps in the country. Kind of big contradiction. So he had to come out and distance himself a bit from the county executive, Joseph DiVincenzo. And I do try to put my theories into practice. I, a part of the movement did run me out. I have to, I guess, put that out there that I did run as an independent candidate. Uh, but that was trying to put the theory into practice that the movements have to have their own democratically controlled candidates. And I think it did help to push the movement forward a bit. But things have basically quieted down. There was also a struggle around the water system that had lead in the water. And that was also an arm of the uh, Newark education workers that took up that struggle. So those were kind of the three major struggles. But at this point, things are quieted. The rent intensification agenda is moving pretty aggressively forward. The charters have increased. Yes, it was not the same rate as under under Booker, but they have continued and consolidated. And it seems like the mom and pop, some of those are going by the wayside, but the big corporate KIPP, Northstar, those are kind of pretty solidly uh, established in Newark. They're not going anywhere, especially with this movement having been contained. And now it looks like Baraka might be throwing his hat into the ring for the governor's office, but that's not clear. So movements ebb and flow. When I see these defeats, which I've been in many over several decades, I've been in struggles. What can you do? You can study them and take out the lessons for strengthening them in the future. And we're going to have some major battles going forward. But there's a lot of bright spots in, you know, Staten Island. Who would have thought the first successful vote was in Staten Island and one of my students was one of the organizers. Now they've run into problems as well, connected to democracy, democratic organization. So it bedevils our movements in many different fields. So the lessons from Newark extend beyond the city and the issue of of education. Well, I think that is a great place to close up. Thank you so much, Jay, for chatting. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed hearing your thoughts about all these issues. Again, the book is Expelling Public Schools, How Anti-Racist Politics Enable School Privatization in Newark. I hope everybody picks it up. And I'll just say, agree or disagree, it will challenge you to think, study, and organize better. 